Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Jason Schulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today on the podcast is Francesca Merlin. She's professor of anthropology at the Australian National University. She's here to talk about her new book, Dynamic Difference in Australia, Indigenous Past and Present in a Settler Country. It's published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2018. Francesca, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. Nice to be here. It's great to have you on. So, Francesca, this book is about the relationships between indigenous and non-indigenous people in Australia who are engaging with each other across major disparities, you know, of knowledge and cultural orientation. What does difference mean to you? Well, uh, difference has to do with the idea of contrast. It has to do with um, people uh, or institutions who have something in common on the one hand and who contrast with others on the other hand. So the book is generally about, uh, or a lot of it is about how indigenous and non-indigenous people have differed in their experience of each other, uh, of their foreignness of each other. And I try to follow out that question about how they have differed over a fairly long span of time. So I think that's one thing that's a little different and a little unusual about the book is trying to pursue that over the period beginning from early colonization into the present. So how does one go about doing that? And maybe you can tell us a bit about what an anthropologist actually does to to do their research. Yes. Well, it is perhaps a bit unusual to uh, delve as much as I did for an anthropologist to delve as much as I did into the uh, archival record and into the record of journals. But if you read these journals of explorers and colonizers and so on carefully, of course you find a lot in them that is really ethnographic. It's ethnographic in the sense that it's ground level, it's closely observed, uh, it of course is often quite one-sided in that the journalist is giving you his version of what's going on. But usually these things do provide some insights into how the people that they were encountering actually experienced things as well. So um, that's one way in which I I went about it. I uh, had for some period of time been reading a lot of the colonial journals of encounter uh, in Australia and, of course, you can't do that without going back as early as Captain Cook, for example, who was himself a pretty great journalist. And he had quite a number of people with him who also wrote very fulsome accounts of what was going on. So that's one source. Um, and that source extends, really, over time, because, as you as you can imagine, uh, and like the United States itself, um People were entering, explorers and settlers were entering different parts of Australia at different times. And so you get the the opening of different parts of the country in that sense. You get the, uh, the these encounters between indigenous and non-indigenous happening 
from you know 1770 uh, right on through into the latter 19th century. Your book, so that's one thing. Go ahead. Oh, and I was just going to say the other major thing that I've drawn on is, of course, my own ethnographic experience, my own uh, experience of living mostly in northern Australia and in a number of different Aboriginal settings. Um, the principal one where I've spent time is in a town, actually, which is kind of an open setting in the sense that uh, there are indigenous people living in and around, mostly around the town, who've come from all kinds of regions around it, and there are also there's also a, a majority white population. So that's the other part uh, that I bring to bear on the book. Yeah, and, and as listeners will probably be able to tell, you were actually born in New Mexico. Uh, you came to Australia in 1976. Maybe before we get to Captain Cook, kind of going back to the long history, maybe you can tell us just a bit about kind of the last 40 years. How much has changed and how much remains unchanged in, in terms of difference? In uh, in Australia? Um, yes, well, I think a great deal has changed, but part of the message of the book is that there are some kind of fundamentals of uh, fairly radical difference that don't change as much as you might think. So, um, but in, in, in many ways, when I first came to Catherine and to that part of the, the central Northern Territory or mid, mid-central Northern Territory, there were actually indigenous people living there who could recall their first encounters with uh, white people in the North. These had happened either in the very last part of the 19th century or the early part of the 20th century. Um, so we had people like that around, um, and they they gave a certain perspective um, and a certain uh, span of time to what could be um, found out and told about that whole historical uh, period. But those people are all gone now. <clears throat> they have all died uh, and you have, uh, you know, subsequent generations. Those people, I would say one of the major things that's happened is um, there was a process already well in train in the 1960s by which Aboriginal people were being more or less expelled from quite a number of pastoral stations, as we call them, or ranches in the American term. Uh, and they were being expelled because uh, there had been enacted uh, a, a wage equalization statute. Um, previously, Aboriginal people had worked on pastoral properties for very little or no money and mostly for keep. Um, unions, however, <clears throat> found that objectionable. They said that Everybody should be working for equal wage and under same conditions. And the pastoralists of the North said that if that wage equalization were to occur, they would be very inclined to get rid of most of the Aboriginal communities living on their properties because they felt that those people were not all workers. They were family groups. They were, of course, by and large, people who came from that area or from that region, and they themselves felt they had a perfect right to be there. But in the pastoral view of things, and this is a, a major difference and a major inequality, in the pastoral view of things, they thought these people are not contributing as workers to the enterprise. 
there are lots of families, there are lots of people who don't work. And so if wage equalization occurs, we will regularize by getting rid of these people. What happened then was a lot of those Aboriginal people and groups went into regional towns. So that when I first came to Catherine, there were something like um, 14 different uh, Aboriginal language groups, if I can put it that way, represented and living around the town. A lot of those people had had an experience of a very sort of uh, very minimal and poor conditions on pastoral stations, largely living in tin sheds with no running water, no electricity, um, very little uh, capacity to, to uh uh, you know, access consumer goods. Uh, and they practically, uh, when they lived in that way, they practically had very little money and so on. And a great deal of that has changed. In the 1970s, uh, many of those people moving into town were brought into the Australian welfare system. They began to receive government transfer money. The conditions of their lives changed somewhat in that uh, town associations were formed. They started to uh, live in more sturdily built houses, although a lot of them are not at the standard of the average European house. Uh, so in all of these ways, there has been a huge change and a very great change in, and consequently also in indigenous people's relationship to the country from which they come. They're, they have been distanced experientially from uh, a lot of the country that they originated from. Very interesting. I want to go back to to Captain Cook in, in chapter one of your book, and, and you look at kind of the right. early the earliest arrival uh, of Europeans in, in Botany Bay, and I think for yeah. most people would 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 assume that kind of the story is one of conflict, but you actually say that there is a story there about a refusal to see, uh, a refusal yeah. to to see the the other arriving. Um, despite their physical proximity. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what seeing means to you and, and what refusing to see means. Yes, okay. Well, <clears throat> I was interested by these early accounts <clears throat> partly because there was a certain kind of stereotypy to way that, the way that they were treated. It was often said that, you know, hostility emerged in the encounter between indigenous and non-indigenous people. But in reading these journals, what I found that there was quite a range of uh, reactions and quite a range of types of encounters. That doesn't do away with the fact that there were certain sort of much more stable structures in place. By that, I mean that Europeans came with intent to stay, with intent to colonize. There was great difference between them and Aborigines in their sense of what they were doing. So these structures were stable and, and, and there, um, and they're very important. But in the different events of encounter, lots of different things happened. And so in those early chapters of the book, I tried to go into what were some of those different kinds of events? How did they play out? And I can... Uh, uh, tell you about a number of them. One of them was indeed this kind of unusual and interesting business where Aborigines are recorded from different parts of the country by these early explorers. Uh, they're recorded as having refused, basically, in some sense, to see the arriving Europeans. That is to say, the Europeans were very close to them physically 
anywhere from a quarter of a mile to immediately in their presence. And sometimes we have uh, journalists saying that they went right up to Aborigines and tried to, uh, you know, get them to say something or to react to their presence, and they would not. So I think from, uh, and, and Captain Cook tells us an anecdote of this kind, or actually Joseph Banks, his botanist, um, records that they, their ship, which was quite large, sailed within about a quarter of a mile of uh, some Aboriginal people on the shore, and those people refused apparently to look up or to acknowledge the boat's presence in any way, whereas it was perfectly within uh, vision. They could have easily physically seen it. So the fact that these episodes of Aboriginal people absolutely not looking, not wanting to to, uh, engage in any uptake, it, it can't be uh, interpreted as just an inability to see physically. I think it has to be interpreted as a reaction of a much more um, cultural kind. And in the, in the book, I, I see it as simply they're not uh, engaging sensorily, that is not taking up visual contact or, or shouting or spoken contact mm-hmm. with the explorers in such a way that they do not admit those people into their presence. It's, you could maybe compare it to a present-day situation that we all experience. Say, if you're riding downtown in New York in a bus and you don't want to engage in any kind of banter, chit-chat with people across from you, you can avoid looking at them, can't you? Mm-hmm. You can look down, you can refuse to meet their eyes and so on. Well, on some scale, I think that's what these indigenous people were doing. They were responding by not engaging. And we can only guess uh, how long you can continue to do that. Um, it's a kind of transitory reaction. If somebody is, you know, right in your face, waving at you and trying to get you to talk to them, um, obviously your refusal to uh, engage with them can only last so long. But again, this was a kind of reaction that's recorded from all over the continent. It's recorded from Cape York. It's recorded from Central Australia. It was recorded by Captain Cook. Uh, and Joseph Banks, it was recorded from Western Australia. So I think we have to take it as a kind of response that people were attuned to, uh, the idea that not engaging was somehow going to make it possible to not have to deal with these people and to not place oneself within their power in some sense. Chapter three is really interesting. It also sort of deals with a, a kind of seeing, and, and that is how indigenous and non-indigenous people see things. And I put things in, in quotes. Uh, it was really interesting to read that, that, um, the, in the, you know, many aboriginal languages, you have yet to find an aboriginal word for thing. Um, how did, mm-hmm. how did the two, um, you know, kind of populations see or not see things? Yes, it is. Um, it is interesting. One of the, uh, you know, I have um, become acquainted with quite a number of Aboriginal languages of that area of the Northern Territory where I've been. It's an area of very high language diversity, and I've studied a number of those languages quite closely. In none of them is there a word that we could translate as thing. 
So people can, of course, refer to things very specifically. They can talk about uh, this kind of tree or, or that kind of, uh, you know, item or something. There is, in some languages, a word that is probably the most general thingy kind of word, which means something like swag. Uh, that's an Australianism I should translate. It means something like bedding or bedroll or something like that. But other than that, um, there really isn't a word that easily translates into thing. And so while I say that one always has to be a little cautious about moving from language to uh, generalizations about the culture and behavior, it does seem to be really important that there is no such word. Um, what I make of it is that there is underlying that a very profound difference in the way that indigenous people uh, related to things as things of value. And um, so one of the uh, principal uh, interests that I have in a couple of these chapters is showing how people related to other people as a, a, the highest priority, if you like, as the thing of the thing, I say, the thing of greatest value, their relationship to others. And um, I think that um, that in a way ca captures one of the most profound differences that on encounter, on early encounter with Europeans, Aborigines were uh, experienced foreigners in meeting them. They, of course, noticed that they were very different in some ways, but they kept also looking for sameness and commonality. They were looking for signs of shared humanity and shared uh, characteristics and so on. And one of the big interests that they had on those encounters were was figuring out whether the arriving Europeans were the same as themselves with regard to sex. So when they saw these Europeans arriving explorers and, 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 and so forth, one of the immediate reactions that they had was they wanted to get to figure out what was beneath their clothes. And this was something that uh, the incomers found rather difficult to deal with. They um, were not, in general, very inclined to take off their clothes and show the Aboriginal people what they wanted to see. There was an occasional explorer, uh, like a guy named Philip Gidley King, who actually instructed his underling, uh, a sailor, to do just that, to satisfy this curiosity by dropping his pants so they could see what what this person was like. And when the Aboriginal people saw that he was indeed shaped rather like themselves, they, they, they gave a great shout of admiration. To me, that stands for the fact that they were looking for signs of something in common. And when they recognized it, they found that to be something to celebrate. Francesca, we're running short on time, so I want to ask you one kind of final wrap-up question, and, and that is, um, you oh. know, bring, bringing the state into the story. As you were writing and, and as you were finishing, and now that the book has come out, Australia has been uh, having you know a national debate about constitutional recognition and and what the state should do to kind of recognize yes. these issues of difference. Um, right. What what does kind of looking at this long history that you've researched help us? kind of think about what what Australia might do uh, in the future? Well, um, yes, 
as you're saying, Jason, recognition in some sense is a theme that opens the book and it closes the book. So in the early part of the book, we have these questions of visibility, the extent to which indigenous and non-indigenous people were, were, were willing to engage with each other. The last part of the book has to do with this theme of recognition on the more national level. And it's been a debate and a discussion in Australia for years in various ways. Uh, it's now come to be cast as a debate around constitutional recognition. So it's been noted and, and said that the Australian Constitution is a kind of dry and, and fairly mundane document, and it doesn't have anything uh, of any sort of uh, significance about Aboriginal people in it. It does have a couple of uh, clauses, but in, they're held to be problematic in a couple of ways, and they're sort of procedural, if I can put it that way, to, to shorten that discussion. Um, so it's been said that what we should have is some part of the Constitution that gives much clearer recognition to the fact that Aboriginal people were originary, that they have um, uh, you know, an enormous role to play in, in Australia, and so on and so forth. But what has seemed to me to be the stumbling block is that Aboriginal people, Indigenous interests in Australia have uh, been confronted with this issue for many decades about whether they will be recognised and how they will be recognised. And they now there are now important uh, spokespeople and um, groups that want to be recognised in a sense that I'll call political. What they have asked for is what is called a voice to parliament. So they want to to have a a, a kind of a group or, or formation that is directly represented in parliament and that will have the capacity to examine any forms of activity in parliament or any forms of legislation that have implications for indigenous people. Now, that is something that has been... Uh, it was um, this request to have this voice to Parliament was formulated in a meeting of several hundred Indigenous people in Central Australia at the Rock Uluru, the big orange rock, uh, in May of 2016, and they came up with a concerted view that this was what what they wanted to go forward: a voice to Parliament. That request sort of floated around in the in government circles and in the media for a period of time and then it was kind of very quickly and and brusquely dismissed by the prime minister who said if we do this it will look like a third chamber and it will look as though we're giving a, you know special representational uh, capacity to indigenous people over everybody else and so it will look you know, unfair, unequal, and so on. And so he very radically ra and rapidly sort of brushed it aside. Well, I don't think, however, that the request for that has gone away. It's still being discussed and debated right now. Uh, it's come back, if you like, on the agenda since that brusque dismissal. And I do think that for the longer-term future, there will have to be found a way of giving and, and creating for indigenous people a much more uh, acute and and uh, effective form of representation at the national level. There's been a long history of their not having such effective 
representation. So that's what I think will have to happen in the long term. But having said that, I think that recognition is clearly of this political kind. Recognition is not something that the Australian government will give easily. There's this constant return to an argument that it's somehow unfair that Indigenous people be differently represented from anybody else or be represented as a special uh, group. And so I think recognition will not be easily given. It's not something that can be simply given in any case. It's being struggled for, however, and I think that that struggle is ongoing. Very interesting. Francesca, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. That's Francesca Merlin. She's a professor of anthropology at the ANU. Her new book is Dynamics of Difference in Australia, Indigenous Past and Present in a Settler Country. It was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2018. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>